0: So uh, thanks. thank you to everyone uh, who's here today, uh, for new visitors, for people that have been a Grace for some time. We're glad you're here. And uh, thank you, Matt, for the chance to preach this morning. So. You may have noticed that the title of the sermon is rather unique, and I hope to make this clear eventually, but I'd like to start with the bank robbery side of things. I'd like to start with a story. So... The morning of August 23rd, 1973, an escaped convict, his name uh, is not all that important, but it's uh, John Eric Olsen, I believe, crossed the streets of Sweden's capital city, entered a bank, and I'm probably gonna get the name wrong, called the Sveriges Creditbanken, so it sounds a little bit like the Swedish chef, forgive me, pulled a loaded gun, fired at the ceiling, and disguising his voice or attempting to, to sound like an American, cried out, the party has just begun. He took four bank employees hostage, demanded 700,000, uh, in Swedish and foreign currency, a getaway car, and the release of his brother, uh, who's a fellow criminal. And so the police complied with two of these three demands. They delivered his, conv- his fellow convicts, who joined him uh, in the bank, the ransom, and a blue Ford Mustang with a full tank of gas. But they refused his demands to, for the robber to leave with the hostages. He wanted to leave and take the hostages with him as insurance that he would uh, get to his getaway. And so they said no. And this quickly turned into a prolonged standoff. And so you can imagine there's four hostages that were holed up inside a bank vault. They were all located within this bank vault. The weird thing, though, is that something happened that um, has had psychologists and medical folks scratching their head for some time, even though we've seen this happen over and over. The captives forged uh, a weird, strange bond with their abductors. So, what happened? Well, it's interesting stuff, it's very strange. So, the abductors uh, began just doing random acts of kindness to the people in the vault. They were, gave them you know, jackets when they were cold. Um, they soothed one of the hostages when they had a bad, dr- had a bad dream. Um, the gunman even helped one of the um, hostages try to contact their family when they couldn't to tell that they were all right. And so, there was this, this strange relationship forming. Um, and one another even complained of claustrophobia, they let her out of the bank, on a, out, of, out of the vault on a, a leash so they could bring her back in. So there's, we're not talking altruistic behavior here, but let her walk around a bit. Um, her thought was interesting though. She told a, a, a um, reporter a year later that she remembered thinking that he was just a very kind abductor to let her leave the vault at all. And so these captives, these people that had had this horrific thing done to them were starting to develop a strange sense of affection for the people that were hurting them. Um, By the second day, the hostages were actually on a first-name basis with the captors, and actually they began, and this is in their own report, to start being more afraid of the police than of their abductors. The abductors were a known quantity. They knew them by their first names, they had a sense of what they were going to do, they were giving them coats, they let them go on short breaks, and they were deathly afraid that the police would actually harm them in trying to get to these convicts. Uh, They actually let a police commissioner in to inspect the hostage's health, and he noticed that they appeared far more hostile to him than the gunmen who were holding them at gunpoint. One even phoned the Swedish prime minister. I'm not entirely sure how they got those phone numbers. I'm not sure that, I don't think Sweden lets their prime minister's cell phone number out, if they even had those back then. But the message was that I fully trust the bank robbers. I'm not desperate, they haven't done a thing to us, but you know, what I'm scared of is that the police will attack and cause us to die even when they were threatened with physical harm by the gunmen themselves. This is the one I found amazing. Um, there was a compassion attitude. One of the gunmen threatened to shoot one of the hostages in the leg to scare the police. And the hostage says, he thought, well, that's very kind of them. Um, it's just my leg. And oh, another one even tried to talk another one, so this one was a little smarter, into taking the bullet. Like, I think this quote is, but Sven, it's just in the leg. So, um, but, but you can see this developing. You can see this, how the this story is evolving here. So finally, several days later, August 28th, 130 hours uh, in captivity, the police broke in, just pumped tear gas into the bank vault system, kind of took everyone out, went in, freed the hostages. So when the police called for the hostages to come out, they refused. They said, no, you're going to gun down the bank robbers if we leave first. So they actually made the bank robbers come out first so that it was clear that the hostages were behind them so that if anybody started shooting... Um, The hostages would be in in the line of fire, too. They were protecting their abductors. Um, Even as they got out, some of the female, uh, a couple of female uh, captives were talking, saying, don't hurt them. Don't don't hurt these people that have, again, imprisoned us at gunpoint for for a couple days. And when all this was said and done, when everybody left, the captives were incredibly confused because they recognized that this is not normal behavior. They recognized that this was strange. Um, One of them was in a psychiatrist and they said, is there something wrong with me? Why don't I hate these people that have captured me? And you may sort of, many of you may see where the story is going. You may have heard the term Stockholm Syndrome. This is, this bank was in Stockholm. This is the first time it's ever been described. But it's this idea that in a small but real number of situations, people that are in situations like this, in situations where they are captive, hostage, develop these strange counterintuitive feelings of affection to their captors to the point where they really want their well-being, where they actually trust them more than the people trying to break them out, so to speak, and have to deal with this for years on end. Now you might be asking what this has to do with the book of Ephesians, and that's, the connection that I'm going to hope to make over the next period of time. So why don't we uh, leave the bank robbery aside for a second, open our Bibles if you'd like to stand. It's in page uh, 978 of the Bibles uh, that we have at the back of the book. And if uh, you're going for the, uh, your own, it's Ephesians 5. We're going to read verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5 and 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, Father, I I ask that you'd bless the reading of your word, and I ask, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with your presence this morning as we consider what you have to say for us from the book of Ephesians. Be with us and open our minds and hearts to hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I don't expect that actually reading the passage has actually cleared this question much up, but I'm hoping to—we'll get there. We'll get there. So this is a pretty familiar passage from Ephesians. It's one I heard often as a child. And I— I guess I always thought that this passage was about general moral advice. It certainly sounds like it. It sounds like a list of things that we should be doing to live a nice, solid Christian life, right? Live carefully. Be thoughtful. That's good. Don't drink or don't drink too much, however you want to look at that. Um, but uh, sing lots, you know. have got psalms, got hymns, got spiritual psalms, multiple kinds of singing. Um, I've seen many try to get a lot out of this passage where they compare the different kinds. We're not going to go there today. And then finally, be thankful and be submissive. It sounds like good, solid, generic moral advice. And it is. I don't want to minimize that. If you just look at what it says right here, right now, and at that advice, and start doing those things, your life will be better and the lives around you will be better. But there's more here. And that's what I want to get at. One thing I've also noticed, and this is kind of drawing back into my history with some of these passages, is that when we think about our salvation, and this is, I think, a point that Matt has brought out very clearly and very beautifully over the past months in this book, we tend to think of our salvation as only. And the the key word is to underline underline only in your mind here. Only about forgiveness. Now, salvation is about forgiveness. I don't want to minimize that in any sense. That's really where it all starts. But the cross and resurrection did far more for us than just get us forgiveness for our sins on that individual level. It's really only part of the puzzle. Um, I don't think it really is a secret that our culture is probably one of the most individualistic cultures that's ever really lived. We You know, a lot of things you see out in the advertisements are about yourself, about making, advancing yourself, what's in it for me. Um, It's all about self-benefit. And oftentimes, I think we look at our salvation in a very individualistic light. It's me, it's my personal sinful acts, and it's God. And again, if you just start with that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's true. I don't want to diminish that. I want to deepen it. So just to be clear, that's not untrue. But it is incomplete. And it's scripturally and biblically incomplete. And I want to go a little bit further than this because that's where the bank robbers come in. So the thing that I've realized more and more as I've studied the scriptures is that it's not this episodic book that just has nice moral lessons for us, but it really is a narrative. It's a story. And it's probably one of the most complicated stories that's really ever been told. Um, it starts, uh, you know, with, with a good God making a world and making a race that's meant to be priests, that's meant to be servants, that's meant to bear his image to the world and to represent that world back to him. And then it kind of goes on from there. And one of the key aspects of this story is this theme that humanity, the old humanity, you, you see this in the New Testament, it talks about being in Adam, this idea that there's an old humanity, the humanity that uh, was made in the garden, the humanity that, that fell in chapter three of Genesis, the humanity that... Um, that, that uh, had the first murder in the person of Cain, and, and it goes on from there, are in a state of, bond, of bondage and slavery, are in a hostage situation. Well, what are they hostage to? And you know, the Bible answers this pretty clearly. We're, we are hostages, we were hostages, that's, being, that's the key aspect, to evil powers, to supernatural beings that do not have our best interest in mind, to gunmen in the bank of the universe, so to speak, that have us stuck in the vault, Um, there's a couple different ways that the New Testament talks about this and the Old Testament for one. Um, One of the powers that we're under slavery to is sin. You know, we often think of sin as something that we do, actions and deeds, and that's true. But it's also talked about just as clearly, if you look in Romans 6, I'm not going to turn there, but Romans 6, 6 through 10, as a power, as some alien external force that enslaves us, as something that has wrapped chains around us and that every deed we do in that service wraps the chains on a little tighter, puts another lock on board, but that sin isn't just an action, it's a thing. It's a thing that's oppressing us. It's a thing that's imprisoning us. It talks about death the same way. Um, death is something that happens to us. It's also something that has power over us. It talks about us being under the power of sin and death. Um, interestingly enough, I think that when we talk about being under the power of death, we think about our own dying, our own mortality, and how that derives from our fallenness, but I think it's really significant that the second, cha- the second major story of human fallenness in Genesis is Cain killing his own brother. Death hasn't just bound us to dying ourselves; it 's bound us to anger and to hatred and to things that make us kill other people. Um, and that's all through the Bible. Uh, Romans 10 and six, six through ten, if you, if you just look there on your own at some point, you can see how it talks about um, the, the sin and death as powers in this way. Mostly actually because Romans 6, uh, 6 through 10 is talking about our freedom from those powers because of the resurrection. But it says very clearly about Christ bringing us out of that dominion. And the whole kind of shady background of all this is that there, is that there are these fallen creatures, these fallen spiritual beings that throughout the Old Testament have gotten us deeper and deeper and deeper into this, into this pit, so to speak. Um, we, can, we see how we, again, back in Genesis 3 sort of turned our back on God's call to bear his image to the world. We see how we became murderers as a race. We see how um, we then uh, began to do a whole bunch of stuff that really required the flood. And then finally, the Tower of Babel, where we get split up, where God's like, listen, we got to do something here, and the human race gets split up. The the majority of it being left under control of these creatures, because God had another plan. These are, the, these are the creatures that uh, Ephesians actually talks about, and we'll get there. This is all in Ephesians, um, but I'm trying to give you the whole, the whole picture. But really, the thing that we have to think about is that we are in a worldwide, humanity-wide hostage situation. We're born into this. Now, I think a helpful way to think about this, and this is the connection I'd like to make to Ephesians here, is where the Old Testament talks about another action of bondage, another time when God's people have been trapped, imprisoned, and then what God gave to them to be free afterwards. And so again, we have the Exodus story. We have Israel. Here are the slavers of Egypt, 400 years. This is a picture of this greater bondage. I mean, everything, it's amazing. Everything in the Old Testament, a lot of things in the New Testament are both what they are and pictures of something bigger. You know, the story has many, many levels to it. And after years of crying out in slavery, the Lord hears their cries. I think we all know the story um, pretty well. Um, but he raises up a deliver. It's interesting how the deliver frees him as well. He frees him through plagues, ten plagues. And who were the plagues against? Was it Pharaoh primarily? Sort of. Or was it against something maybe even that Pharaoh himself was a slave to? Each of the plagues goes after an Egyptian god. Each of the plagues is neutralizing the power or showing that the power of one of the uh, the gods of Egypt, these, these things that Egypt was serving was nothing as compared to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there's a sense of being freed, and then you get this great story where they get to leave, the ocean opens up, they go through, the slavers you know, get drowned, and they, and they start heading to the Promised Land, and then what do they do? They complain. Where does that happen? Numbers 11, they began complaining. They wanted meat, they wanted melons, they wanted leeks, cucumbers of Egypt. Um, Exodus 11, they're out in the desert. Surely they remember that God brought them through the water not too long ago. And yet they complained of Moses, Why did you take us from Egypt to die of thirst? It's pretty clear, <laughs> to me at least, that the Israelites had a version of the same thing that happened in Sweden, at least to some extent. These, these people were saying, that We were better off in slaves. We were better off in Egypt. We were better off under the slave masters that we were crying out for deliverance from not too long ago. Um, you know, we want a watermelon. We're, not, we're, we're tired of this manna. I mean, that's more or less what it says, and an onion. They want onions. They want watermelons. We want to go back to slavery because they have onions and watermelons. And so God does something that I think we often wonder about. It makes him wander for 40 years in the wilderness. But I think the reason behind that is actually pretty thoughtful if you think about God's wisdom here. He realized that the generation that had left Egypt was going to have trouble with this. And so he waited until a new generation rose up. Forty years in the Bible is a generation. He was waiting for their kids. Hopefully their kids will be ready for freedom. And this brings us all the way to the book of Deuteronomy. So they're there. They're on the edge of the promised land, and we get this book of Deuteronomy. It's another one of those names you hear as a child when you're hearing the names of the book of the Bible, and you're wondering why it's there. It's a second giving of the law. It's Moses saying, okay, here's everything that happened before. Go in the land Here's what you need to do to live. Here's what you shouldn't do. But he gives them something very unique, I think, and something that we're going to bring back to Ephesians to make this connection. He gives them a prayer, Deuteronomy 6.4. It's a very common prayer. I'm sure you've all heard it. Um, Jesus quotes it himself um, multiple times. Uh, It's called the Shema, and the word Shema is Hebrew for hear, and it goes like this. This is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. There's more to it, but we're going to just focus on those verses. Jesus refers to this as the greatest commandment, the thing that all the laws and the prophets hang on, with only one other coming after it, love your neighbor as yourself. And as we'll see, that is actually kind of inherent in this as well. This is how the Israelites, think about it, the Israelites were free. They had been freed, but they weren't living free. They were living like they wanted Egyptian watermelons. They were living like they still wanted what their situation of abuse, to, to use the modern terms for it. Um, and God was trying to give them something to help them learn how to live like free people. I mean, that's really the issue here, right? Uh, is not just being made free, because just because you're free in, in actuality doesn't mean you feel free, doesn't mean you're thinking free, doesn't mean you know what it means to be free, doesn't mean you know what this new normal is that God has. And so he gave this prayer to remind them, and to this day, um, faithful Jews will recite this prayer at least twice daily. And, and I think this was fascinating too. I was, I was reading this. It's what their kids recite before going to bed. And it's what they're supposed to recite as their last words on their deathbed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so if you think about the situation now that we're in, that we have come into through Christ, you know, the, the Gentiles, the, the Jews had been freed in the Old Testament. The, he, the Hebrews were freed. But the Gentiles are still being portrayed as deep, deep in bondage to these dark powers. Sin, to death, to the devil, to his fallen angels. Whatever name you want to give. All of the above. You know, the Gentile nations were imprisoned until the coming of Jesus because the crucifixion and resurrection really changed all that. Um, here's a verse from Ephesians that really just tackles this head on. And read this verse with this idea in mind and see if you can see it here with me. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Um, Matt actually drew this out during a sermon on this. And you... parenthetically, at least in my, I just want to say this is referring to Gentile believers to give us the context again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, right there, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. But you see that phrase in there, Um, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this idea of being dead, of being imprisoned to this whole thing. Um, and if you want to look up some other verses where this whole idea shows up, it isn't just here. I'll throw a few out. There's uh, Jesus in John 12, 27 through 33, talks about, you know, now is the time when he's going against this darkness. And when he's lifted up to the cross, all nations, all men will be drawn to him. Uh, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, there's a phrase, there talks about the elemental principles and Sometimes we think those are ideas, and sometimes people get translated differently. But in Greek, the real idea is that those are evil powers. It's it's still that idea of being imprisoned. Um, Colossians one uh, nine through eleven talks about it. You can see it all through. It just it saturates the New Testament idea. This idea that at the crucifixion, Jesus was performing something in the order of a cosmic jailbreak, freeing us from these prisoners, from these these the, that it, that it imprisoned us. Um, there's a, a quote about this too. Uh, you're looking for a very long but very good read. Um, can't recommend the book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ is by Fleming Rutledge, and it's, it's thick. It's like, you know, you gotta take a good half a year to go through it, but it's not a hard read and it's really good. And here's a quote that I really think captures this. Only a power independent of this world order can overcome the grip of the enemy on God's purposes for his creation. Jesus Christ, the heir of all things, offered himself to be the condemned and rejected righteous one, giving himself up in full knowledge of what would happen to him. And in perfect union with his father, he went to Golgotha carrying his own cross, on which he was nailed, despised, and rejected by men. At the historic time and place of his inhumane and godless crucifixion, all the demonic powers loose in the world convened in Jerusalem and unleashed their forces upon the incarnate Son of God. Derelict, outcast, and God-forsaken, he hung there as the representative of all humanity to break the power of sin and death over all humanity. See, this is what we've been freed from, and this is the act that freed us. If we are in Christ, if any man is a new Christ, he is a new creation. If we, if we have committed ourselves in trust to this one who broke the powers of sin and death, we are free. But here's where Ephesians 5 comes in. It doesn't mean like, that we know how to live free. We have been in bondage all our lives. We don't know what normal looks like anymore. So how do we live free? So let's go back. Let's go back to Ephesians 5. Let's go back to the passage and talk about The particular things this verse, these verses ask of us. And let's go and let's look at these in the light of that prayer, that prayer from Deuteronomy. Um, Paul knew Deuteronomy quite well, and so it doesn't surprise me that this seems to map to these verses pretty well. And I was surprised. I thought about this connection, and I'm like, nah, that can't really work. And then I thought about it, and then I started looking verse by verse. I'm like, well, it actually does seem to. And so What I'd like to do is look at these verses in the light of that call to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our minds. But first, I think it's important to talk about what these words mean a little bit, heart, soul, and mind. Some of this uh, info I'm getting just again to, because a good professor, I like to let my sources out. The the Bible project video on the Shema is quite good, and it goes into a lot of these in some detail. So in the Old Testament, the word for heart uh, is lev. It's a Hebrew word. And whenever we think of our heart, we tend to think of our emotions only. That actually isn't what the word means. That's part of it. But really, the heart is everything inside you. You know, somebody's love was not just what they felt, but what they thought, their intellect, their will, what they did, what they wanted to do. So it really kind of combines our idea of heart, our emotions, with our idea of mind. It's mind and heart. It's the whole thing. Well, look at verses 15 through 17. Just read those verses again. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We have the intellect, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We have prudent judgment. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Again, we have wisdom. You know, in these verses, we're being called to approach our new freedom in Christ with wisdom and not folly. I mean, it really kind of calls on the whole book of Proverbs to some extent, there, which we can't do a whole sermon on right now. Um, but we're asked to really to prudently make the most of every opportunity that our situation in the world affords for God. We're asked to think carefully. We're asked to use our minds. We're asked to know God, to understand his will, so that we don't approach life in a reckless or a foolish fashion. We're, we're asked to use our love. We're asked to use our heart to live for God and to use that to define what this new normal is for us. Because God has already told us what to do. Next word is with all our soul. That's a really interesting word, and um, there's, a, there's a lot of work that's gone into this one, but the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh, which many of you may have, may or may not know, but I think whenever most of us think of the word soul, we have our very, again, our, our kind of modern English idea of the word soul, and we think about the immaterial part of mankind. That's actually more the heart in the Hebrew way of looking at things. The Hebrew word for soul really isn't talking about that in the same way that, that we talk about it. It actually is just talking about your life in general. It's talking about sort of the that which animates you and keeps keeps you moving it's it's physical it's spiritual it's it's a whole nine yards It's the idea of you as a living moving breathing organism and breathing is key because there's a lot of passages in the old testament where that same word gets translated as neck i'll just tell you two of them um you know one is psalm 65 save me O god um the waters have come up to my neck that's an the word neck there is an same word um, the next one is in Psalm 105 through 18. It's talking about Joseph, and it talks about how he has an iron collar around, around his neck in that verse, if you look at, in there. And the word, I looked this up to make sure, is, is fashion. I'm like, huh. So, what does that mean? Why is that? That kind of puzzled me a bit. And then I started to think I mean, I'm a, I'm a physician, so I know what tends to go into and out of the neck. What do we do with our neck? Well, we breathe. We breathe in air, it goes into our lungs, oxygen fuels the cells you know, keeps the fires going, makes the, burns the fuel. We put food, we put food in. We put things in our body that keep us alive. What comes out of our throats? What comes out of our neck? Speech. We're speaking. We're showing people what's in our hearts. We're showing people what's in our lives. We're revealing something about our inner nature through that. Of course, it makes perfect sense that a word that means life would think about breathing and eating and speaking. That's what living people do. Let's look at what these verses talk about. The first thing it talks about in, in the next faith, let's let's uh, let's go to the the verses again, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, with your heart. The first thing we're told here is things we shouldn't put in our necks. You no. um, we're told not to be drunk with wine. Again, that's been interpreted many different ways. Not going to go into that right now. But the whole point here is. Don't take something into yourself with such excess that it makes you do things that would lead to debauchery, dissipation, immoral behavior, ways of leading life that don't match our freed status. Don't put stuff in you to the extent that it's going to make you live in a way that doesn't match our freed freed status. You know, instead we're asked to put something else in us. What does it say to put in us? Spirit of God. Latin spirit. You know, Greek um, pneuma. Our word, breath. The spirit of God, especially in the Old Testament, the breath of God. I mean, when it talks about and the spirit of God was moving across the waters in, in uh, Genesis, it's talking about this wind coming from God that's getting ready to breathe life into creation. The spirit of God, the wind and the fire in the New Testament um, in, the, in the book of Acts that comes in and dwells the apostles. God's saying, don't take in stuff that's going to make you do things you'll regret and, and, and will re-enslave you to your old life. Breathe in me. Breathe in me. And then what comes out of us when we breathe in God? Song. Praise, honor, worship, glory, things. We 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 speak of God. Our lives begin to radiate his very character. You know, as freed members of the, the new humanity, Christ is he's asking us to fill our lives with the life of God. And when that life is taken back in us, what does it do to our life? It makes our life like his. It makes us breathe out God we breathe in God, we breathe out God. And who do we breathe out God to? Each other, the world around us. That can't help but transform people. It's the life of God. It's it's the spirit of God that created life from nothing in Genesis. It's the spirit of God that speaks about us even having raised Jesus from the dead. Same spirit. Finally, the last word, with all our strength. This one's interesting because of all the words, this is the one where the Hebrew root surprised me the most. The word is miyad. And it actually is not talking about just sheer physical strength. Like, you know, this is not about, when it says love your God with all your strength, it's not talking about bodily strength. It's not talking about bench presses or, you know, like whether you can like lift a fridge or something, not not that I can do that or not sure why you'd want to. Um, But the word actually translates to something more like force or muchness or manyness or abundance. And if you think through that, when it's talking about our strength, it's talking about our resources. It's talking about the things that we have, the things that we have that let us have force in the world around us. You know, somebody has got a good bank account, they have force. They can make stuff happen. You can pay the guy to do your car. You can do that. Um, it's, it's our abundance. It's that which has been given to us to be a steward over. And what do the next verses talk about? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting one to another out of reverence in christ we're called to do two things if this pattern really works we're called to do two things with our strength we're called to give thanks for it to give thanks for the gifts that god has given us recognizing everything we have as a gift and we're also called to mutually submit one to the other and all this is to be done out of reverence for christ i mean i'm reminded of philippians 2 um I have a hard time preaching without quoting Philippians 2, so I don't see why today should be any different. But when it says that, um, that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped after, but made himself nothing. I mean, that, that's, that's a key verse. What is that saying? It's saying that submission, it's saying that giving, it's saying that taking the, that God himself as Christ, having the infinite resources of God, doesn't consider possessing those resources to be as important as giving them on behalf of us. I mean, that's the whole point of that verse. God is self-giving in his very nature. John, you know, John 4, 1 John 4, God is love. He gives. He's a self-giving God. And we actually see that in the church, and the doctrine of the Trinity, this idea that the Father is giving himself to the Son, and the Son gives himself for us to give us back to the Father, and it's all this big web of self-givingness. He's inviting us into that here. Give thanks, but not just give thanks. Give thanks, in Jesus' name, to God the Father. Why? Because Jesus has been given thanks to God the Father since before time again. So he's saying, come on in. Use your muchness, the muchness I gave you. Give it back. I'll give you some more just to give it back because giving it back is who I am. Be like me. Be like who I am. Come in. Enjoy the life of God. Be shaped by who God is. Matt um, has been referring a lot, and I think very beautifully and rightly so, to this idea that, the book of Ephesians talks about us in Christ as if we are a new humanity, a new, a new race is the wrong word. Species would probably be the better word, almost. This, this idea that as humans, we're being called to be something more, something greater that gets back to what God had intended and then kind of takes it to the next level. But it's one thing, this one new humanity. And the issue is that that new humanity is God-shaped. It's God breathes, God breathes into it and created it just like he created the first humanity, the imprisoned humanity we came out of and God is breathing that life into us. These verses are about breathing that life back out. So, interestingly enough, I, I tried to look up a bit on, you know, how you cure Stockholm Syndrome, and there's really not a lot out there. Um, because interestingly enough, it isn't really a disease. It's actually a survival impulse for dealing with extraordinarily horrible circumstances. It's it's how, in a sense, normal people deal with really abnormal things, and then how they get stuck in that state of abnormality. And so, Needless to say, curing it takes a long time, a lot of counseling, a lot of stuff like that, but from what I found, there's really two kind of key principles. You know, number one is that you've got to get people to understand what normal is again, to, to kind of unlock themselves from what they were thinking was normal during their time of imprisonment. From this, this is my normal life, now I've got to adapt to it, to get rid of that and say, no, that's not normal, that was profoundly abnormal. But also, to work at moving away from thoughts and actions and the things that people thought were helping them, there thought that was getting them by, to say that, no, these things are hurting you. They're keeping you in prison when now you're free. It's about knowing that you're free, believing that you're free, and living as if you're free. And so as we look at this practical outliving of our new life in Christ, I think the thing we have to realize is that what we thought of as normal, what humans have thought of as normal for the past umpteen millennia, is not. It is a profoundly abnormal state. It is not what God has created us for. We have to get that. It's hard to get, right? I mean, you think of everyday life as normal and God's saying, no, the everyday life that you were used to before you knew me, what's been happening in human society for millennia, this is not normal. Normal is Genesis 1. Genesis 3 is not normal. And we have to get that. We have to believe it first. Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about this too. He says, no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but to put off our old selves, which belong to the former manner of life and be renewed, renewed in the spirit of our minds, putting our new selves on, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness. And then we have to practice. These things are not learned overnight. These are habits. Anybody ever try to break a bad habit? Anybody ever succeed? Yep, I've succeeded in breaking a few. I've also succeeded in acquiring some. I mean, bad habits are hard to deal with. You know, they're they're patterns. They're patterns in our mind. They're patterns in our our spirits, really. They're patterns in what we do. Patterns are hard to break. Humans like patterns. That's how our brains work. Um, The only way to get rid of a bad pattern is to put a better one in place. You can't just stop doing something. Jesus said that too. You know, when you cast all these demons out of a house and you sweep it up and make it look all nice, guess what? If you don't put something stronger in the house, they're gonna come back and they'll bring their friends because now the house is clean. It just, it doesn't work. You've got to replace it with something better. And so we have to work with the spirit to reshape our thoughts and actions to match our new freedom. You know, Philippians 2, to go back to Philippians 2, um, says this also. It says, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But then it says something profound, I think. It says that he works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's this idea, again, of filling ourselves with the Spirit, that we start to do work. We work on changing these things, but we breathe in the Holy Spirit and trust and believe that as we start that breathing in process, he'll come out. He'll do his job. He'll do what he said. He'll He'll fulfill his promises to us. So, you know, it's a real challenge, I think, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, especially given the hold that evil had on us, the habits that that's left with us, And so I don't think we should really be surprised this is difficult. That's okay. It's okay that this is hard. The Christian life is not easy. You know, being free, living free is not an easy thing. It doesn't have to feel easy. But we have to remember, though, that we're called to not give in. And we're called to, again, breathe in God's spirit to remember that the one that's within us is greater than than he that is within the world. Father, thank you for this chance to share your word. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us here wisdom and insight, that you would help us to breathe in you, that you would help us to breathe out prayer and song and praise, that you would help us to be submissive one to the other, to be thankful, and that, Lord, that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul as we embrace the new freedom we have in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.